Today we're beginning a new 10-week series in the book of 1 Timothy. And I'm going to say something quite shocking, I think, today. I'm going to encourage you to reject the Bible. Or rather, I'm going to encourage you to reject some of the teaching from the Bible. And if, at this point, you're wanting to pray down God's righteous judgment on me, just hang back for a little bit as we get our bearings in this uh, wonderful book. Let's look at, uh, to begin with, at verses 1 and 2. Always easy to skip over the introduction to Paul's letters. Always a little dangerous to do that, I think. Let's look at God's commission, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul. An apostle is somebody who is an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus, commissioned by God to preach the Gospel. And Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, because Jesus is the entire subject of his preaching. Wherever you look in Paul's letters, his subject is Christ. Whatever Paul teaches, wherever he goes, he has one topic of conversation. That's going to be important for us as we look at the rest of this passage, because Paul has one clear message in mind. And Paul has his commission as an apostle of Christ Jesus from God, by his direct command. Paul is introducing a theme that runs through the next couple of verses, a chain of command, beginning with God. God says, Paul, go, preach the gospel, and Paul goes. And so verse 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, we find in in verse 3, is in Macedonia. He's delayed in some fashion. And so he writes to his friend Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy's been with Paul for maybe 20 years at this point, travelling companion, co-author of uh, scripture books. And now Timothy has been uh, commanded to go and be in Ephesus. And, And Paul says, Timothy, you're my true son in the faith. We're like peas in a pod. We're hewn from the same block, Timothy. I am your father, you are my son, spiritually speaking. I think Paul is doing a couple of things right at the beginning of his letter here. Uh, The first thing he's doing is reminding Timothy. Timothy, we we share the same gospel DNA. We're, We're from the same place. And just as my commission from God is to proclaim Christ, so is yours. But I think he's also saying something to the church. I guess this letter's being read out not just to Timothy, but to the whole church in Ephesus. And Paul, if you like, is looking over his shoulder to the rest of the church and saying, you lot, you need to know that Timothy comes with my authority. He comes with God's authority. He comes as my representative. He's my son in the faith. He's a faithful one. And Paul has to do this, I think, because the situation in Ephesus has got pretty desperate actually. If you know Acts 20, Paul has his last meeting with the elders in Ephesus, and he says to them, ravenous wolves are coming. Even some from among your own number will turn out to be those who devour the flock. We know if you've been in our small groups this year, Revelation chapter 2, the beginning of those letters to the churches, where Ephesus, they've lost their first love in Jesus. Got some things right, but, but things haven't gone completely to plan in this church that Paul planted. And now we see the situation is bad enough in Ephesus that Paul has sent Timothy to take over the church, actually. It's a coup. 
Uh, Timothy's been sent in to remove some of the elders from their positions because they're not fit for the task. He's been sent to appoint other elders to replace them, people who are, are suitable. Timothy's being told to preach and to train and to teach. Particularly we see that in 2 Timothy, as Paul returns to his subject at that point. I wonder how bad things would have to get here at CCE before uh, our elders, our, our preachers, were taken to one side and removed from our positions and other people appointed in our place. You'd have to say, things would be pretty desperate, wouldn't they? And the church won't necessarily like it. Uh, Paul uh, goes on in his second letter to Timothy to say that there are folks in the church who are gathering around themselves, preachers who will say the sort of things their itching ears want to hear. Not telling them the truth, but just telling them whatever they want to hear. And you have to say there's plenty of that around in the church today. This is a rancid situation in Ephesus. Uh, there are false teachers. Uh, we learn much about them over the course of these ten weeks. Let me just take you to one other reference in uh, 1 Timothy to get our bearings a little bit on their motivations. Just turn over a couple of pages to chapter 6, would you? Chapter 6 and verse 3. Let me read. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Lots of echoes there to our passage this morning. <coughs> we go to the end of verse 5. They think that godliness is a means of financial gain. There are false teachers in Ephesus. And they're full of the love of money, at least on the inside. That's what motivates them. On the outside, they're making a show of godliness. Uh, they forbid marriage and abstain from certain foods. They have a simple lifestyle, uh, 4 verse 3 tells us. Harsh restrictions on the freedoms of a Christian uh, in order to seem pure on the outside, whilst all the time on the inside motivated by greed. Now that's what's uh, going on in Ephesus. And Paul's, uh, the essence of Paul's command, I think, is very simple in our passage, isn't it? Look down at verse 3 there. Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. See the chain of command here. God commissions Paul. Paul commissions, instructs, commands his son Timothy. And now Timothy is to command the false teachers. God is commanding the false teachers to stop. Of course there is true teaching as well. I just look down at the end of verse 10. Uh, the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he has entrusted to Paul and indeed to Timothy. There is the, the, the sound doctrine, the healthy doctrine, that comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's everything else. Unwise, unhealthy uh, poisonous false teaching. And there are teachers in Ephesus who are teaching falsely and they must be stopped. Of course, uh, Paul and Timothy understand the situation rather better than we do. And, I, and so my feeling is uh, we've, we'll take this passage backwards, uh, section by section, because I think that probably makes it a little easier to explain. Um, you could come and tell me afterwards if I'm wrong about that. But we're going to begin with the false teachers uh, use the law unlawfully verses 8 to 11. We're told in verse 7, aren't we, that the false teachers want to be teachers of the law. That is, teachers of the legal code of the Old Testament. 
And you have to say, that's a good instinct, isn't it? I hope that we will do that from time to time. At verse 8, we know that the law is good. The law is good. Paul says that everywhere where he, he talks about the law. Reading the law is good. Teaching the law is good, but only if one uses it properly, says Paul. Literally, lawfully. So what Paul's saying? That not every use of the law is lawful. And there's a way of teaching the Old Testament legal code that is illegal, immoral, improper. They're teaching the, the legal code to produce godliness. Remember that the, the, the false teachers here want to become rich by encouraging people towards godliness. So perhaps they're demanding that the whole church obeys this strict legal code. We certainly see in, in 4 verse 3 they don't want marriage, they, they want people to live simple lives, strict lives, ascetic lives. And perhaps they are putting themselves forward as the great teachers of this strict moral code in order to get financially rewarded. But Paul says, such a use of the law is unlawful. An unbiblical use of the Bible. There's teaching from the Bible where the scriptures are open and constantly referred. There's teaching from the Bible that is unbiblical, that should be stamped out. That should be rejected. Why? Paul goes on. Sorry. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. The law could never produce the godliness that God desires. It can never make the church godly because its primary job is to convict sinners of their sin. Just consider the list Paul gives here in verses 9 and 10. And notice that he isn't listing sins here. He's listing sinners. Types of people. People who are characterised by these particular traits. These are their, their core moral characteristics, or I should say immoral characteristics. Uh, lots of them overlap with each other. They're not distinct categories necessarily. But Paul is, is making a point here, isn't he? Consider the first six things that he says. Uh, for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. All six of these things relate in some way to our our posture towards God, don't they? They're the equivalent, I suppose, of rejecting the first four of the Ten Commandments, if you know the Ten Commandments. Uh, They're all about loving God, giving our whole devotion to to God. And here are people who are law-breakers. They are rebels, they're ungodly, they're unholy, they're irreligious, they don't care about God. Don't care about what God thinks. Uh, the rest of the list, then, I think, broadly speaking, relate to the other six of the Ten Commandments. Uh, so you have uh, the fifth commandment, I think it is, uh, to, to honour your father and mother. That's a really useful law for those who are tempted towards killing their father and mother. Verse 9. You have the law against uh, giving false testimony, which is really useful if you're a liar or a perjurer, and so on. Now let me be clear, I don't think Paul is rejecting the usefulness of the law. He's not saying, let's just cut that bit out of the Bible and throw it away. It's it's done. It's redundant. Because Paul himself, in in the next letter to Timothy, same situation, he says, all scripture is God-breathed 
and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. It would be weird if the whole Old Testament is really useful for training people in godliness except the law. That would be really odd, wouldn't it? So I don't think Paul is saying, cut that bit out of the Bible, it's, it's redundant. That teaching that part of the Bible altogether is a bad thing. The law is useful for convicting us of sin. Of showing us how much we need Jesus. It shows us the things that God cares about and the direction of travel for the Christian life. But the law cannot make us godly. And just think back to our sermon series last term and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus takes the law, he says, the law is good, and then he goes beyond it, doesn't he? He says, uh, the law says, do not murder. And Jesus turns it up again, doesn't he? He says, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. Jesus takes the direction of travel and he ramps it up, he turns it up, doesn't he? He says, it's much bigger than that. If you like, the, the law was a low bar, and Israel consistently failed to jump it. But for the Christian, the bar is much higher. And teaching the law by itself cannot get us there. It can teach us what godliness might look like, but it cannot make us godly. He said, look at how Paul ends that little section. All those ungodly ways of living, and many more besides, are contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Just pause here for a minute and think about what Paul's actually saying. Paul is saying that there is unhealthy doctrine, unsound doctrine, at things that people are teaching that produce ungodliness, I guess. Paul doesn't fill in the blanks for us, but he says there is a godly teaching that conforms to the gospel that produces a godly life. But if you, if you see the world in the wrong way, if you see the world in an ungodly way, perhaps you've rejected God altogether, as the first six of these types of people have done, you're bound to get your ethics wrong, your morals wrong, you're going to get everything wrong, aren't you? Your whole way of seeing the world is going to be wrong. Because the most fundamental question, who is God? What's he like? What does he care about? You've got the wrong answer. How can you expect to produce real godliness if you've got God wrong? But someone with healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, that conforms to the gospel, well, that's someone very different indeed. And someone in that situation doesn't need the law to tell us not to kill our fathers and mothers. You don't need the law to tell us that lying is wrong because, I'm going to say something controversial again, because our doctrine makes us godlier people. Now that's controversial. I'm at the end of the passage, we're working backwards, there's more to be said on that. Hold fire on your questions till we get to the end. These false teachers, then, are using the law unlawfully because they have rejected the power of real Christian conversion. Look at verses 5 to 7 with me. Again, we're working backwards through this little passage. Notice there's nothing wrong with wanting to be teachers of the law. It's a right desire. The problem is, these teachers don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. That's Imagine being in Ephesus as this is being read out. You're one of those teachers. And Paul says, you don't know what you're talking about. Ouch. Let me feel about this big, don't you? They've got the right instinct, says Paul. They want to teach the Bible. Though, of course, we should remember their, their motivation is greed. 
They want to teach the Bible, but they just don't know what they're doing. They've no idea. Tragically, I think what Paul says here is so true for many of the clergy that I know in the Church of England, and I guess that's true in in all sorts of the mainland denominations today. People who open their Bibles and don't have a clue what they're doing. And you see much the same results as I think Paul was seeing in Ephesus. I think verse 6 explains what they've got wrong in order to be these teachers who don't know what they're talking about. Some have departed from these, verse 5, and have turned to meaningless talk, verse 7. Teaching of the law, that is, abstracted from Jesus, teaching they don't know what they're talking about. They've turned to teaching like that because they've departed from something else. What have they departed from? The power of real Christian conversion, I think, at verse 5. See, the error of the false teachers is not that they want to teach the Old Testament. That's a good and right desire, and I hope that we do it plenty here. But our last series was in Zephaniah, wasn't it? Paul teaches the Old Testament a lot. If you read through Paul's letters, he quotes the Old Testament all over the place to make his points. The Old Testament is good. And Paul also gives us lots of commands, lots of instructions for Christian living. Paul's not against commands for the Christian. But he wants us to see that the power of Christian living is not in the laws themselves. If it was, then we wouldn't need a new covenant, would we? We'd have the old covenant with all its instructions. That would be enough. And we know that it wasn't. And so verse 5. The goal of this command, this command of Paul to Timothy, is love. What does Paul want for the Ephesian church? That they love one another. They live a life that is full of love for others. The Christian doesn't need to be told not to kill their parents because the Christian impulse is, is to love other people. To go far beyond not killing and actually doing what's best for other people. And a ministry that's faithful to Paul's gospel will produce loving community. In the end, that's the test of authentic Christian ministry. And that love, notice, comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And it's these three things here that the uh, the false teachers have rejected, verse 6, in order to turn to meaningless talk, their false teaching. They've rejected real Christian conversion. So we need to look at these things a little bit for a moment. Look at uh, sincere faith. I think that's <coughs> excuse me, relatively easy to understand, isn't it? Faith is, is our posture, it's trust, it's believing the promises of God. It's believing in the Lord Jesus who has died and risen and ascended and is coming back to bring his people home. It's believing all the things that God has said. And our posture here is to be a sincere faith. A thoroughgoing grasp on Christ. A humble bowing before the word of God and clinging to Jesus. Our conscience here is our decision-making faculty. I guess you'd say it's our mind in the way we think about things. And Paul says you can have a good conscience or a bad conscience. A good mind or a bad mind. A good mind is one that is able to make wise decisions. And that seems to be related very much to a grasp of the gospel. A sincere faith in Jesus. A grasp of Jesus and his centrality to all things. And God's purposes and God's plans shapes our mind. 
If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that the way you see the world has been changing as you grasp more and more of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And a Christian is therefore, with their sincere faith, their desire to live for Jesus, able to live out of a good conscience, a, a right way of thinking, making wise decisions, about living in the world. Not perfectly, of course. None of us are perfect, and all of us are a, a mixture of uh, wise and godly understanding of the world and, and deeply worldly as well. But nevertheless, truly, living out of a good conscience. And finally, at the, the heart is the emotional centre. It's the place where our action comes from, our will, our, our, our ambition, our desire. And that your heart is clean as a Christian. Uh, clean there is, is, a, is a, a, a picture of, of washing, of, of, um, of, of the sacrificial system, of, of the cleansing of our, uh, our desires. But no doubt it's pointing, I think, to the death of Christ. Death, Jesus' death that uh, enables us to approach God afresh, uh, washed clean of all our impurities, our sin, our wicked desires. A life of love, says Paul, flows from a sincere, humble grasp on who Jesus is, a trust in what God has promised. From the empowering of a, a good conscience, a clear mind, an ability to see the world as God has made it, and a clean heart, a desire to live for God. Of course, many of us will be thinking, gosh, <laughs> I'm a mixed bag. I don't live like that all the time. My heart is sometimes impure. I have these desires to do the right thing and desires to do the wrong thing. And sometimes I'm confused about which is which. And that'll be true for all of us to a greater or lesser extent. Which is why God still gives us his rules, his instructions. To help us to know what is the right way to live and what is not the right way to live. It gives us clarity about the direction of travel. It helps us to distinguish godly loves from ungodly ones. But you see, what we need is not primarily to know the law of God, although that's helpful. It is to know Jesus. To love Jesus. It is as the Spirit shines on Jesus, as he shows us what Jesus is like, that we become more like Jesus. That's the paradigm all through the New Testament. It's as we dwell on Jesus, as we spend time with Jesus, as we love him. As we treasure who he is, how he interacts with people, the plan of Jesus, the purposes of God, that we become more and more like him. And I guess, to some extent, need the law less and less. They're like the training wheels. We can take them off because more and more we become like Jesus. Perfectly loving. That's where we're heading. Perfectly loving, like God, like Jesus. On that final day when Jesus returns, we will become like him in an instant. That's what uh, 1 John tells us. Because we will see Jesus as he really is. And even now, we, we see Jesus as through a glass darkly. Uh, but slowly but surely, we, we perceive more of Jesus. We, we go to grasp him more. We delight in him more. And so as we, as we grasp that gospel, as it reshapes us, we are empowered to live a life of love. And I take it, to a greater or lesser extent, every one of us who's a Christian here will be able to bear witness to that. But the more time we spend with Jesus over, over years and years, 
Some of our old loves, some of our false loves have disappeared and, and, and we've gr- developed new loves. Passions for, for mission that we never had before. Uh, passions for uh, other people that we've never had before. Our love gets turned out from ourselves and turned to God and turned to other people. Godliness comes from a great grasp, a deep desire for, a commitment to the Lord Jesus. I think that's why Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus. Because here are these teachers who are trying to achieve godliness by teaching rules. In fact, they're trying to teach anything apart from Jesus. That seems to be the point in verse 3. They're they're teaching anything but Christ. They've rejected the power of a real Christian conversion that changes hearts and enables us to live like Christ. And that is folly of the very worst kind. That's worth just pausing for one second here and thinking about ourselves. Where's our temptation here? I don't know if you've had that experience where you've, you fall into a sin that has been a, a dogging you for some time. I wonder how you react to that. It's tempting, isn't it, to say, I must try harder. I must obey that rule that says I can't do that. I wonder how many of us actually turn to Christ at that point. Say, Jesus, show me more of your glory. Show me more of your purposes and your plans. Show me who you are. Drive from my heart this desire for this evil thing. Help me to treasure you more. That would be the right response. That would be the Pauline response, wouldn't it? I wonder when was the last time you spent an extended period of time praying and reading your Bible? Reading a good book, treasuring Jesus. It'd be so easy, wouldn't it, to plateau in the Christian life. I wonder when you last spent an evening or, or even a whole day, a Saturday, took some time away, sat in the park in the sunshine with your Bible and just praying over, over the Scriptures. If we give meagre time to Christ, it's not a surprise if we plateau a little bit in our godliness. Well, having seen that the power of godliness comes from uh, the gospel of Christ and the doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel of Christ... And having seen why the false teachers are so wrong here in Ephesus, we still have to ask the question, what's the value of godliness? What is the target? What's the aim here? Is it for getting rich, like the false teachers want to do? Is that the purpose? That takes us to our final point. True godliness establishes God's household management. Forgive the slightly clunky phrase there. I'll explain why that's there in a moment. We've seen, haven't we, that verse 3 sets the scene. Paul commands Timothy to put a stop to this false teaching. And in verse 4, we get a little bit more insight about what they're teaching. Myths and genealogies and the like. Speculations. But more importantly, we get to understand what is at stake here. It's crucial for us. Paul says, Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The word myths there is... Um, falsehoods, uh, stories made up. It's possible these are myths and genealogies about uh, the patriarchs, about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, perhaps about Moses, some of these important characters from the Old Testament. Maybe they're they're extra-biblical stories, stories that are outside the Bible that have grown up in the Jewish culture about these characters. Maybe they're, they're so preoccupied with those things they've lost sight of Jesus. Perhaps the genealogies have nothing to do with the Old Testament at all. Maybe they're just a Jewish practice of knowing who your ancestors are. 
What is clear, I think, is that they are focused on speculative things rather than on God's work by faith. They're not interested in Jesus. They never teach Jesus. They're focused on other things. I think there are two errors to avoid here. I think, on the one hand, we must be very, very careful of pointless speculations. Lots of medieval uh, scholarship was about things like how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And you think, how does that help me to love Jesus more? Utterly pointless. On the other hand, there's a big trend in the church today to say, well, we can't know anything very very sure. Uh, Certainty is divisive. So we're going to say, you can hold your opinion, I'll hold my opinion, and the fact that they're completely contradictory, we'll we'll give each other a hug and say, well, let's agree to disagree, because it doesn't really matter anyway. And that's poison, friends. Paul here is very happy to be dogmatic. He says, these people are false teachers. They're wrong. And their teaching is fatal to the church. Paul wants us to be very, very clear about what the Bible does say. In other words, we can neither be dogmatic about speculative things, which the false teachers are doing here, nor speculative about doctrinal things that the Bible gives us for certain. The Christian aim is to know Christ as he is fully revealed in the scriptures. What does Paul say? Such things promote controversial speculations rather than or in opposition to advancing God's work which is by faith. And here I think we get to the heart of our passage and indeed to uh, one of the key ideas of this whole letter. (coughs) Excuse me. The false teachers are distracting from and working against God's plan. That phrase, advancing God's work, has the idea of uh, rightly governing a household, which will be an idea that comes up throughout the letter. Uh, The whole book is about the right ordering of God's community. Uh, The sin of Adam and Eve broke the whole created order. It fractured relationships, it divided communities one from another. And the church is meant to be the first fruits of restoring those relationships. It's it's the way of uh, putting back together the created order, breaking down dividing walls between one community and another, and re-establishing right behaviour. So the question is, what's the value of godliness then? It is that uh, it advances God's work. When we live a life of community love, rightly ordered according to God's pattern, we are putting on display the first fruits of what God is going to finally establish when Christ returns. That's why he says it's by faith. It's something that's only possible in the community of faith. It's only possible for the people who have grasped Christ and desire to live for Christ. That's the only way you're going to get godly community. All the false teachers, those here and elsewhere, are opposed to God's plans in their pursuit of their own selfish gain. They multiply myths instead of teaching one thing, the gospel is in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul sends Timothy. Timothy, you've got to stop them from teaching this rubbish. They're distracting people from the one thing that saves, the one thing that makes people godly. They can't create godliness where there's no spiritual life, not by teaching the law. Only the gospel of Christ can produce community that God desires. Because only knowing Christ 
can make us like Christ. Of course, other teachings might be attractive. There's plenty of people who've moved from faithful churches, even from this church, to listen to false teachers because they like what they're being told. They get their itching ears scratched. Paul might, might very well have used this uh, phrase from Galatians 1.8, where he says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the gospel that we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Let him be damned, he says. False teaching is really bad because it distracts from the glory of God in Christ. This is only an introductory passage to the book. We've got much more to say. Having puzzled through the passage, though, and, and tried to understand a bit of what's going on in Ephesus, what do we do with what we've seen here this morning? Well, first, let me say, please fix in your mind this truth. Not every uh, teaching from the Bible is biblical teaching. Faithful teaching focuses on the gospel, magnifies the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ, and grows a church in godliness. If we elders, Andy, myself, and, and Rob, and John, and Ali, if we are failing in our responsibility, as the elders in Ephesus did, well, shame on you if you don't spot it, frankly. It is to our, all of our good that we understand what the gospel is and what it is not. Secondly, when the church turns bad, radical surgery is needed. Paul imposes Timothy, who, who is known in many ways as, as the first bishop of Ephesus, to remove the bad elders and train better ones. It's a really serious thing to do to a church. And so I want to say, give thanks. Give thanks that we're part of commission, a network of churches in this area, where, where the elders and the pastors together hold each other accountable, keep each other on a short leash, keep each other at teaching the gospel. It's good for you guys that we have that accountability. Third, let me say, we need to be committed, every one of us, to pursuing the knowledge of Christ with our whole hearts. So let me ask, how much of your life is really spent dwelling on Christ? On his glory, on his purposes, on his promises, on his achievements, on what he's going to do when he returns? It's no wonder that we struggle with godliness if we, if we haven't committed ourselves to really knowing Christ. <coughs> My friends, we need to see Jesus all the time. All the time. He needs to be in our devotional times, our quiet times, in our personal reading of, of every kind. He needs to be in our conversations with each other. He needs to be uh, stuck on your computer screen at work in Bible references and, and hymns that cause your heart to sing his glory. He must be our first love and our greatest passion. And we must push each other to greater devotion to Christ. Fourthly, a great question to ask when you're not sure how to live is this. What are the demands of love in this situation? That's not what Paul says. What I want for your church is that you love each other and love the people beyond your church. So a great question to ask when you're in conversation with a family member, perhaps who's not yet a Christian. How can I love this person? When you're at work, how can I love this person? When you're disciplining your children, how can I love this person? And so on and so forth. Because that is the supreme Christian ethic. Of course, 
Uh, we'll learn more and more how to answer that question as we get to know Jesus better, as we see how he interacts with people, how he loves people and confronts people and dies for people and lives for people. As we dwell on him, we learn more and more what it is to speak in a loving way and to act in a loving way. Fifthly, as our community grows little by little, as we love one another more and more, so we will bring into being here in Ellsfield the sort of community that, uh, that points other people to the new creation community that God is going to bring about. Yes, we're not perfect. Of course we're not perfect. We're all sinners and we all struggle every day to live this way. And yet, please don't miss how much God has already done in us. Don't miss how close to that we are in so many ways. Long way to go. But we have begun the journey, haven't we? A loving community that reflects Christ's love and Christ's purposes. But friends, we'll only be everything we're meant to be in God's purposes if every one of us here is committed to Christ for ourselves. If that's not you, if you haven't given your life to Christ yet, if you haven't embraced uh, the truth about Jesus and put your trust in him, then please, can I encourage you to think about that very seriously? Come and talk to me afterwards if you'd like to find out what, what more that uh, is involved with that. This is a high calling, friends. God wants a community that is radical and Christ-like. Paul demands here a, a, a godly dissatisfaction with every ounce of worldliness in our community here, in ourselves and in each other. It'd be so easy to leave here, wouldn't it, and go and join a church that was more permissive, that was happy with whatever you want to do. Of course, that's the, the sort of church that Paul would send Timothy to. But if we're going to be God's new community, then we're going to need to be radical together. So let me get practical for one moment, please. I'm going to ask everybody here to, uh, to close your eyes if that's helpful, just to think. Okay, Think of one thing, please. <coughs> it might be a, a scripture that you've read recently that has helped you to see Jesus afresh. Might be a book you've been reading that has opened your eyes to an aspect of the glory of Christ that you haven't seen before and you're excited about it. Might be a talk that you've listened to where you've thought, that's really just helped me to see Jesus in a new way. Think of that one thing, fix it in your mind. And now let me encourage you not to leave the church this afternoon, this morning, this afternoon, until you've shared that one thing with somebody else. Can we encourage each other? with the truth that's in Jesus? Can we help each other to see the glory of Christ again today? Can we make it a habit to, to share those things that are so precious to us with other people so that they can share in its preciousness too? Perhaps you can make it your aim to share with one person and to ask one person uh, what would be their great encouragement. Let us show one another the glory of Christ so that we might grow into the household of God built on Christ and his name, as he intends. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we're so aware of the temptation to, uh, to shortcut, to try and uh, be godly in our own strength, and to be godly without the Lord Jesus and without uh, reference to the Spirit's work in us. 
And we pray your forgiveness. And we pray that you would make us those who are totally committed to uh, sincere faith that breeds godly love that changes our minds so that we can see the world as you see it and, uh, and changes our wills so that we desire to live your ways. Please would you help us to see the good that is in our community already and please help us to step out and grow in those areas where we struggle that we might put on display what it is you are doing in the world building a new community for your name's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.